Well, good morning again. If you're visiting today at the mill, I'm excited to announce today is our, um, lucky for you, our, our 12th annual Visitor's Talent Show. So about halfway through the service, we'll call you up if you could be ready to perform your hidden, I'm teasing, but we're glad you're here. If you could at least do this and fill out an online welcome card, it'd be great to get to know you a little better. You can just do that digitally on your smartphone, themill.church slash welcome, themill.church slash welcome. Uh, just a little information to help get us know you better. That'd be great. Um, if you're here and you have little ones or sometimes have little ones, we have a great place for them to hang during the service to learn more about Jesus, and that's uh, our children's wing. And we have uh, awesome volunteers who are background checked and equipped to serve you and your family well. I want to give you just a couple of announcements, if I may, before we get in today's message, and uh, they are these. First of all, Brady's going to give you a couple more toward the end of the service, but we have a Your Money, Your Goals Thrivent Workshop Financial Seminar coming up on November the 14th. November the 14th from 10.45 to 11.45 a.m. That is a Sunday morning. It'll be during the second service in the Commons area. Nate Heeg, our very own Thrivent Financial Representative, will be presenting on basics of personal finance, including uh, budgeting and a number of other um, really uh, starter-level ideas. So maybe you're newly married, maybe you're, uh, you've been married a while and you still haven't gotten that together and you want to learn more. This would be a great uh, class to take in, so I want to make you aware of that. also want to make you aware along the lines of Thrivent, that if you're a Thrivent member, what is Thrivent? Thrivent is a financial advisory firm uh, that has investments that a lot of Christians uh, have, uh, you know, their holdings in. I used to be Lutheran. It's now uh, very ecumenical, and and people of all uh, faith backgrounds uh, go to Thrivent and get great advice. And so Thrivent gives every account holder a Thrivent action team, what they're called twice annually. They can pick an event to fund, and Thrivent, it's part of uh, their service and giving back to the community. They'll give uh, a $250 gift card per account holder for two events out of the year, so $500 total uh, to an, an event wherein an organization is serving the community. So for years, the Mill Church has had events where we're serving community. And somebody in our church says, hey, I have a Thrivent Action Team, and I'd like to give you one of my two $250 gift cards to uh, offset some of the church budget. That's been tremendously helpful to us. I would say in any given year, we probably see $2,000 roll off of our books and expenses that we don't need to incur because people have generously given the church one of their Thrivent Action Cards to serve the community. So if you have any available that you do not plan on using between now and the end of the year, we have several November and December events 
coming up. We're going to tell you more about those in upcoming weeks. Uh, We're going to have a spaghetti dinner the night before opening deer season where we're going to serve the community. We're going to have a Thanksgiving Day meal prepared here by some of our very own. For those who will be alone on Thanksgiving Day, they can come here and eat spaghetti and meatballs. Um, Several other events. Uh, Some of our life groups want to give clothing to kids at the schools. So just uh, keep us in mind, if you will. We're in a series in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four biographies uh, written about the life and ministry of Jesus. We're looking at several different kinds or characterizations of people that are represented in the Gospel of John who had a hard time believing in Jesus. Uh, Thus far, we've looked at both the uh, religiously vaccinated folks, that is to say, those who uh, have, you know, this uh, vaccination of religion and are therefore really immune to the, 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 the real thing, the real relationship with Jesus Christ. So we talked about that a bit. We also talked about uh, those who are um, sexually captive. Last week, that was an interesting Sunday when you discovered, when you walked in and I started talking, that we were actually going to be talking about sex. I expected to see uh, a a room full this morning, um, maybe eager to talk about it again. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Are you guys here today? Yeah? Is everybody okay? Everybody awake? All right. Okay. I don't have many funnies today, so I suppose that's a good thing. Um, this room feels rather cavernous and daunting, though I'll, I'll tell you that uh, for whatever reason today in particular. But um, today we're going to talk about, uh, you know, a, a different kind of individual that we meet in, in John, which is, again, all about belief. Um, you have to understand, well, someone might say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how this series really applies to me because I already believe in Jesus. So isn't this just kind of a waste of our time? I mean, we don't have that many visitors. Here's what I would say. Um, you have to understand that all of Christian growth is essentially in learning how to believe the gospel. I mean, if you show me somebody who really believes that Jesus Christ resurrected from death and died for them, that's somebody who will change the world. If they fundamentally believe that what they believe is really real, that's somebody that'll be a soul winner. That's somebody that'll tell their neighbors. That's somebody that will be relatively bold and fearless compared to their religious peers who insist that church attendance and looking spiritual is the way to serve Christ. So I would say, we need to lean all our weight into believing in Jesus, um, which is what scholars say the word believe really means in John, uh, that it means leaning all of our weight into him. Uh, let me put it this way, just for a, a metaphor. There's a difference. Anybody here ever skydived? Okay. I have two of us, Kara. Anybody else? No? Okay, you're, you're planning on it? Good, it's fun. Uh, got a little sick, but it was still fun. Uh, so there's a difference in believing that a parachute will work for Kara, for example, 
and jumping out of a plane. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a big difference. And so, in, in, in this text today, I'm going to submit to you that the latter of those two, belief enough to jump out of the plane, is true biblical belief. Um, so whether you're already believing or not, I hope there's something in this for you. In John 6, we'll encounter a group of people that can't really believe for two reasons. First, uh, they don't think this is their problem. They're so focused on, they're so focused on uh, quick fixes that they miss the real Jesus. So again, um, in the first week of our series, you may remember this quote by Francis Schaeffer. If he had one hour to explain the gospel to people, he would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative, on their condition as a sinner. And it's only in the last 10 to 15 minutes that he'd switch to the positive, a crucified Savior dying on their behalf so that they could live forever. Schaefer said, so much of our spiritual work isn't clear because we get too anxious to get to the answer without people understanding fully their problem. That they're sinful. That they're not fundamentally good. That they are, are in fact, fundamentally bad. And we've tried to socialize... You know, we've, we've tried to bring justice to the world in so many different areas, and it seems that inevitably a Hitler rises up, a Pol Pot rises up, um, you, you know, um, an Attila the Hun rises up, a Stalin rises up. Um, we, we are not fundamentally good, and humans left to their own devices are going to do very, very, very bad things but for the grace of God. And so I think Schaefer was on it. Here's how you know you're in this group that um, doesn't understand their real problem. You're just kind of bored with Jesus. You're just kind of bored with the Christianity thing. Um, you don't hate him. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're also not filled with deep love and passion for him, and by contrast, the sign for those that are really in love with Jesus and really believing in Jesus is, is one of two emotions. Either they'll, excuse me, those who really believe in Jesus, not those who are in love with Ness necessarily, but those because even demons believe and shudder, those who believe in Jesus either hate him with a passion or they love him with a passion. And so if you believe, you'll have one of those two reactions to Jesus. You'll either despise him or you'll, or you'll love him. And if you're lukewarm, if you're lazy fair if you're in the middle on this, um, that shows that you have yet to truly encounter Jesus Christ. So this group I'm going to show you in John 6, they also stumble over some things that Jesus has taught. They are easily offended easily offended. Why are they offended by Jesus? Because they're not looking for somebody to point out their sins. They're looking for a life coach. They're not looking for a savior. They're looking for a philosopher. They're looking for better tips for living. They're looking for self-help. They're not looking for someone who's going to challenge them on the sin that exists in their hearts. So Jesus is not, I guess the point that I'm getting at, some salad bar 
where you go up to it and you pick the things that you like, but you don't take the things that you don't care for. You know, I like the cottage cheese. You know, I, I like the croutons and the sunflower seeds and the bacon bits, but I don't so much care for the radishes. So I'm going to leave them in the tub. Um, you can't take the parts of Jesus that you like, the, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, the do unto others as they do unto you, and leave out the, the go and sin no mores. You can't do that. So, again, we've seen the religiously immunized, we've seen the sexually captive. Today I'm going to call these people the short-sighted. That is the characterization of the people we see in John this week. They don't recognize the real Jesus. They take parts of him, they leave parts of him. Uh, we call this group short-sighted because they don't understand the real problem. They don't recognize the real Jesus. And John chapter 6 is where we'll be. If you'll turn there, we'll have it on the screen for you behind me. It opens with this problem, and the problem is that people are hungry. Say hungry. Hungry. So last week, if you'll remember, in the story of the sexually captive, we met somebody who was thirsty. Today we're going to meet a whole group of people who are hungry. So the problem is people are hungry. Jesus had a lot to say. His sermons could get really, really long. He'd start after breakfast. He'd, you guys are actually fortunate in this way that my sermons don't last as long as Jesus' sermons. He'd start after breakfast, he'd go through lunch, he'd teach sometimes to dinner, and people just sat there the whole time, mesmerized. Granted, Jesus was a very, very good preacher. But they'd sit there, mesmerized. And when dinner time would come, Jesus would pause and he'd ask his disciples, you know, it looks like people are getting hungry and kind of cranky. Should we feed them? Should we feed these people? who are sitting here and continue teaching. And verse 6 tells you this was actually kind of a test question. Jesus already knew what he was going to do to feed them. So here we have Jesus effectively giving a pop quiz to his disciples. And he's going to let them respond and answer his question, what should we do about this? And the disciples start giving their answers to Jesus' pop quiz. And one of them says, "Uh, I don't think we really have an option here at Jesus. There's 20,000 people. See, we read 5,000 in the gospel account, but that was the men. They counted the men. So if you throw in the family, the women and children, we're probably talking about 20,000 people. And the first disciple says, effectively, let's just send them home. Let's just send them to the home to home to eat. We, We can't possibly feed this many, and, and that's a fail, right? He fit, the first guy failed the pop quiz. Jesus says that's not a good answer. So another s- disciple, Philip, says in verse 7, 200 denarii, which is a lot of money, it's about eight months' wages, 200 denarii, um, that'll probably do it. That's enough to buy food for everyone if we buy just a little food. For everyone. So the first disciple says, let's send them home. Jesus said, wrong. The second disciple says, if we pool all of our money up, Jesus, we could afford to give everybody roughly a snow cone. That's about as much as we can give everybody. 
We can give them a, a snow cone. That, 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 that's a great idea, right, Jesus? And, and can I have grape, you know? <laughs> and Jesus says, no, that's a fail too. That's a bad idea too. And finally, one of them, Andrew, says, well, I found a little boy whose mama packed him a lunch. And he says he's willing to share it with you, Jesus. At least you, Jesus, could have a full meal. So why don't you jump backstage? We'll jump on stage. We'll sing a song or two. Perhaps Jesus love, loves me. And that'll give you a minute. That'll give you a, a minute to eat. And you can continue to teach even though. And that third idea kind of started off a little good. But it wasn't the correct answer either. So three times Jesus says, Fail. And Jesus takes the little boy's lunch and he prays over it and he starts dispersing it. He performs a miracle. He multiplies five loaves and two fish and they can't give it away fast enough. And this becomes a buffet. Any Golden Corral fans in the room? Golden Corral is my jam. I love Golden Corral. I've always loved Golden Corral. I don't care who you are. You're not too good for Golden Corral. Golden Corral is awesome. So this turns into Golden Corral. And everybody's eating. And there's 12 bushel baskets, one bushel baskets left over. Verses 14 through 16. When the people saw the sign that he had done this miracle, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, what were they going to do? They thought, he's our new political leader. Just look at what he just did. Apparently, they got really excited about Golden Corral. They're fired up. They're thinking, imagine if this guy led our nation. Jesus perceives, they're trying to make me king. We get golden corral all the time. There'd be a chicken in every pot. There'd be a car in every driveway. If this guy can do this with five loaves and two fish, imagine what he could do with the stock market. This guy could end world hunger. This guy could eliminate the need for Medicare. Verse 15. But after having perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus, what did he do? Withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Isn't Jesus' reaction kind of strange? Usually, usually preachers love big crowds. And Jesus runs. He takes off to be by himself. And please understand, this isn't his shyness. This isn't introversion. This isn't anxiety. This isn't being blue. This isn't depression. Jesus correctly understands, correctly, that he's avoiding Disaster. Jesus correctly understands 
that he is in that moment evading a group of people who are entirely missing the point. Jesus did not come to end world hunger, or at least not at first, as important as world hunger is. Jesus is up to something more important. So because, because they're getting it all wrong, he goes and hides in the mountain until nightfall. And after that, he takes an evening stroll on the sea, not by the sea, but on the sea. And he walks over to the other side. And then apparently somebody makes a Facebook post about it or an Instagram post about it because they find him there on the other side. They find him, they track him down, and then in verses 25 through 27, when they finally found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? When did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Now remember when Jesus says truly, truly, he's about to say something that's a big deal. He's about to say something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want another golden corral. That's why you're chasing me. Then he says in verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus is making this point. Please understand that while I gave you bread, I'm really here to offer you a different kind of bread. That's the real reason I'm here. Jump down to verse 34. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Remember how the woman last week in John 4 thinks that Jesus is talking about physical water? They're making the same error here. But, but they don't get that the physical bread is just a picture of the spiritual bread that Jesus has for their soul. So Jesus says, verse 35, uh, to, to, to really bring this to light and, and emphasize what he's really talking about, he says, I am the bread of what? Life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is offering his audience reunion with God. He's offering to reconnect them with God. That is what the human soul, after all, is missing. Blaise Pascal called it a God-shaped hole. Jesus didn't merely show up, in other words, with external fixes because there was nothing external that anybody could give us, including Jesus, that could satisfy us indefinitely, in perpetuity. No golden corral setting has ever filled you to the extent that you were not hungry the next day, if not the same day. Our soul 
craving is not for something, it's for someone. And until we've been reunited with that someone, we will, Jesus is saying, always be hungry. Doesn't matter what we get to eat. Doesn't matter what material possessions we have. We'll be lacking. We'll have the God-shaped hole. This is the difference, um, we might as well call it, between existing and really living. Church, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not talking about mere existence forever. It's talking about thriving forever. Living free of pain, free of hunger, free of relational discord, free of trauma, free of loneliness, forever. Simply existing forever, in, in fact, is what people will do in hell. They'll exist forever. In hell, you, you'll just exist apart from God for, forever and not with God. In fact, you could say you have two options for eternity. One is a place of eternal existence, and the other is a place for eternal life. Hell is a place for eternal existence. Heaven is a place for eternal life. A wise person once said, eternal life is not a quantity of time, but a quality of existence. Think of something quality you love. And I love a quality, we'll just stay on the food trend. I love a quality avocado. Man, to me, there's nothing better than an avocado at just the right stage of ripeness. I can have all the avocados I want, but if they're still hard, I don't want them. That was a pretty weak illustration. But you get the point. Eternal life isn't a quantity, it's a quality. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we, they're still not thinking correctly. What must we do to fix our problem? How do we get this bread? In other words, and Jesus answers them, this is the work of God. Let's say the uh, antonym. Jesus is saying, this is not the work of who? You. This is not your doing. This is God's doing. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he sent. It's not something you can, in fact, you're powerless to receive God. Rather, the bread is given to you as a gift from God himself doing the work of restoring you to him. So the bread here is a great picture. It is a great picture of the gospel. Jesus' metaphor of the bread is better than my metaphor of the avocado. In order for the physical bread to do your body any good, it has to be broken. Meaning your teeth have to mash it up so that you can ingest it, so that it can go down into your stomach, right? Jesus' body would be broken for us on the cross so that he could feed us, feed our spirit eternally. Similarly, in order for water to do you any good, water has to be poured out. 
It has to be poured out so that it can become the water of life. Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross so that we might look and live. Our problems, here's the point, are so much deeper than anything that can be fixed by food in our stomachs, by clothes on our backs, by education in our brains, or even justice in our government. In the 19th century, there was this movement in Britain called the British Socialist Movement, which thought that with the spread of education and culture, soon the world would just progress beyond injustice and beyond savagery. And what's fascinating is to compare what many of the leaders of this movement said, both uh, after World War I and after World War II. For example, um, Beatrice Webb wrote in her diary in 1890, I stake everything on the essential goodness of human nature. And then she'd reference her own statement 35 years later um, after World War I, and she'd say, I realize now how permanent the evil and instincts and impulses in us that mere social machinery will never change. There's no way we can make this better with the inventions of man. There's no way. Our ideas to fix the problem just aren't good enough. It's not that we we shouldn't try valiantly, but if we think we're going to progress or regress into a utopia, we've got another thought coming. David Cecil said after the Holocaust of the World War II, the philosophy of progress has led us to believe that the savage and primitive was behind us, but it turns out that it was within us. It turns out it was within us. The way you can tell, what's your point, Pastor? My, my point's that the way you can tell the difference between a true gospel that Jesus gives and a false gospel that the world gives is that the primary focus is to restore us to God in the real gospel. In the other inferior, lower G gospels, they want to restore us to one another. But the true gospel is about God. It has at its primary aim reconciliation with God. The focus of its hope is God. The focus of its affections is God. John Piper said, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. And similarly, God is not a way to get more stuff. I hope you would agree with that. What you need is not stuff. What you need is God. God is not, in other words, as the prosperity gospel teaches, a means to an end. God is the end. God is the goal. We don't become Christians because Christianity will make life easier. We become Christians because we want, we're desirous of God. And secondary kinds of bread will never eclipse the bread from heaven. And because this passage started off with the people who wanted Jesus to be their leader, I think we, their political leader, I think we would be remiss if we didn't say that this also includes politics. Absolutely does. Because politics 
are a secondary matter in the church, and I hope you agree with that statement thus far, there can even be disagreements among church people regarding politics. One of Jesus' disciples was named Simon the Zealot. He was a Jewish nationalist. The other was Matthew the tax collector. He was a Roman uh, of Roman rule. This means that they were polar opposites, two of Jesus' disciples on the political spectrum. Matthew the tax collector was far left. He believed in the state. Simon the Zealot fiercely opposed the state. He was far right, and both of them are in Jesus' band of disciples. And it's not that they lost their opinions. I don't believe that for a second. I'm sure they both maintain their opinions. Um, it's that they were unified by the bread, the living bread that Jesus was offering them by the one that satisfies ultimately, not by the one that temporarily satisfies. When the Apostle Paul talked about the gospel, he said the matters of first importance were Christ and Christ crucified. He went on later in the chapter to explain what he means by this. John six fifty one. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, Jesus says, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and unless you drink his blood, you have no life in you. And of course, the disciples are thinking, this guy's fallen off his rocker. He's weird. What in the world does, does this mean? Is this some Halloween prank? Like, this is creepy. Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And after this, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. Now, we now know in our evangelical sphere, our Catholic brothers and sisters would probably disagree with us a little bit. We now know that Jesus was talking with metaphor. In the same way that he was talking with metaphor when he said, um, I am the door. I am the vine. You are the branches. But he was talking clearly in, in metaphor here. Jesus was saying, when I'm crucified, my body like bread will be broken. My blood uh, will be poured out like water. Believing in me is like eating my flesh and like drinking my blood. We get that now, but at this point, they didn't get that yet. And this isn't polling well. People are leaving. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave too? And Peter says what could be one of the most important declarations of faith in all the Bible. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. 
we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here's my question to you guys. Do you believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God? And that he has the words that are necessary for eternal life? Where else then are you going to go? If you believe in Jesus, to whom else would you turn? There will be times when you're confused. There will be times where your soul is in turmoil. And in those times, you say effectively what Peter did. Lord, I don't know all the answers. I don't get all this flesh stuff and this blood stuff. This is really weird to me. But I know you. Anybody else besides me just read the Bible sometimes and you're confused? It's just tough sometimes to get through parts of it, stretches of it. What does this mean? I don't know, but I know you, Jesus. Where else would I go? You, my life is falling apart. But you've saved me. Where else would I go? You're the Holy One. You've promised me salvation. You've promised me heaven. Where else would I go? You are what my soul hungers for. You died for me. You rose again for me. I'm sticking with you. No matter how bad this gets. No matter how confused I am. I'm planting a flag here. I'm dying on this hill. I'm sticking with you. I mean, to know God and to know that God loves us, that is the bread of life. What else do we need? What else do we need? Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just... I pray, Lord, that we would keep primary things, primary things. A crucified Savior. A resurrected Lord. Communion of the saints. A home in heaven. Unity in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would keep secondary things, secondary things. Materialism. Food. Politics. Lord, we allow ourselves to get off track and skewed and misaligned. Lord, center us again on your love and affection. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.